This is Self Work, and I'm Dr. Margaret Rutherford. At Self Work, we'll discuss psychological and emotional issues common in today's world and what to do about them. I'm Dr. Margaret, and Self Work is a podcast dedicated to you taking just a few minutes today for your own self work. Hi, I'm Dr. Margaret, and this is Self Work. I'm a clinical psychologist out of Fayetteville, Arkansas. I've been practicing over 20 years now, and this podcast is about taking a moment in your own life to consider your own issues, your own struggles, your own experiences, perhaps your past, perhaps your present, and to offer you some space to think about those things, perhaps ponder a new direction. Some of you may be in counseling, but there may be many others who've never even talked to a psychologist or know how one might think or feel. So that's what self-work is for. And I want to welcome you or welcome you back. Today, we're going to be talking about self-esteem and self-acceptance, how they're intertwined with each other and how in the heck are you depressed and still somehow hang on to your self-esteem and your self-acceptance. If you're struggling with shame, what happens to your self-esteem or your self-acceptance? How do we handle our fear of judgment from other people? Often we project onto others what we think of ourselves, and we think they think the same thing, and that's simply not true. So how do we handle that? If you do struggle with depression or have experienced depression in the past or in the present, What happened to your self-esteem or your sense of self-acceptance? Could you hang on to them? I'm going to have an idea of how you potentially can. And lastly, we're going to have an email from a listener who wrote in about what to do when your therapist doesn't remember your actual life history, that he or she is making mistakes when they talk about your life. What is that old saying? Just the facts, ma'am. And they get the facts wrong. Anyway, we'll talk about that. I can assure you that it does not feel good. (laughs) When I first moved to Arkansas from Texas, where I had been for 14 years, there were facts about my life I didn't really want other people to know. My inner critic said, you know, you'll be judged if people know you've been divorced twice, which I had been at that point. I had lived in a big city. I liked living in a big city, and it scared me a little to move into a smaller community. I'd grown up in a smaller community, and I knew that people tended to know a lot about your business. So my plan was to keep that information close to the vest. I wouldn't lie about it, actually, but I didn't freely offer those particular details. As you can see, I was still coping or trying to cope with shame. And I was nervous about not being seen as a successful person and certainly not a competent psychologist. You know, what does she think she's doing trying to help others when her own life has been so messy? So my self-esteem was still pretty rocky from all that. But I remember when it popped out, I had a patient who was sitting on my sofa and who was getting her second divorce. And I could tell by the way she was talking to me that she thought I wouldn't have a clue of what that felt like. And so I looked at her and just very quietly said, you know, you're joining a club that I've been a member of for a long time. She looked at me like, what? (laughs) So thus began my honesty about my past. 
And at this point, it's all over the internet. So there you go. And you know, in the telling of it, my self-esteem has actually gotten more solid. And that's what we're going to talk about today. What is self-esteem? It's defined as a realistic respect for or favorable impression of oneself. Self-respect or pride are synonyms. You know, what strikes me there is the word realistic. That's what we, as people, struggle with. What exactly is realistic? Are we realistic about ourselves? And what's the difference between self-esteem and self-acceptance? Self-acceptance involves self-understanding, or here's that word again, a realistic, albeit subjective, awareness of one's own strengths and weaknesses. Or someone put it as knowing your unique worth. But again, like I said a minute ago, there's that word realistic again. As a therapist, when I'm dealing with someone who says they have low self-esteem, I ask them to list their competencies, what they believe they do well, what are your strengths. I'm a good friend. I tell a great joke. I'm good at math or soccer. Now, of course, there are some people who look at me and say, I'm not good at anything, but I challenge that. And usually we can find some things that they can own, that they know they do well or are well, if that makes sense. (laughs) They are kind. They are generous. That kind of thing. So we can begin to see how self-esteem and self-acceptance work hand in hand. If you know what you feel good about, what you feel competent within, then you can have esteem about those things. But self-acceptance also involves recognizing and admitting your vulnerabilities. And when one of those vulnerabilities is mental illness, so many people believe that that must remain secret. Problems with addictions, depression, panic, eating problems, obesity or anorexia. It's really hard to hang on to feeling competent when you're hiding a secret. And of course, in depression, your own thinking can become very irrational and you're not, quote unquote, realistic at all. Your judgment skills can be way off kilter. And yet, we see that people have strengths and vulnerabilities all of the time. We may not know about it, but I can assure you they have them. That's the one of many gifts about being a therapist is that very competent, successful, humble, kind, generous, loving people are your patients, and they have problems. For example, maybe your medical doctor struggles with insecurity and depression from abuse he experienced as a child, and he was determined to be extremely successful. Perhaps your yoga instructor has fought for control and esteem by eating very little or working out too much. Your accountant may be overly perfectionistic and obsessive, even when he or she's at home. Or your auto mechanic may have severe dyslexia and bear the emotional scars of being really bullied when he was younger. Yet you know what? You never know it. That same doctor is still empathic and and diagnosed your diabetes before it got out of hand. Your yoga instructor has helped you connect with your body and your breath in a way that's been very healing. Your accountant has saved you so much on taxes, you could take a vacation. And that mechanic always has a smile for you an explanation of what went wrong and how he can fix it. Maybe one of these days that auto mechanic will tell you he's dyslexic or your yoga instructor will say, sure, I've had an eating disorder for a while 
and yoga is the way that I deal with it. I try to manage it. Maybe he or she will open up to you and you'll know what their vulnerability is. But there's one thing that is important to believe if you're going to gain in your own self-esteem and self-acceptance. And what is that? One fact about you does not define who you are. In my own experience, for example, not one person that I've ever told in my office that I have panic disorder and still deal with anxiety has walked out, claiming I should heal myself before attempting to heal others. No one who hears that my senior year of college, I ate around 700 calories a day, barely weighed 100 pounds, and have had to work on that eating disorder and that eating disorder thinking. No one has told me I'm incompetent because of that. And no one, after I've revealed that I've been divorced twice, has ever rejected my help or guidance when I tell them I understand. In fact, they thank me. Your strengths are not all of who you are, nor are your vulnerabilities. We give that gift to other people. We have to give it to ourselves. In fact, when I think about the people that I've loved in my lifetime, I realize I've loved them not only for their talents or their wit or their caring, but I've also loved their vulnerabilities. I've understood that they battle with insecurity or self-doubt. I've accepted all of their being. When you think about your children, if you're lucky enough to have them, you certainly, if you love well, do that with them. We can do that with parents or spouses or friends. That's what love is. That's what knowing someone, really knowing them is all about. And self-acceptance is the act of doing that same thing for yourself. And guess what? That leads you to self-esteem. Now, the interesting thing to me is something that's going to seem a little contradictory. When you're depressed, you can hold on to your self-acceptance, even though you don't like being depressed, by not denying its existence. What do I mean by that? What do, what do people call depression other than what it is because they don't want to accept that they have it? They say they're tired. They're overwhelmed. I'm just not thinking straight. Maybe I have a chip on my shoulder or I'm hard to get along with. You know, I haven't been sleeping well lately and everything just pisses me off. Well, guess what? Sure, those could be just normal, everyday things. Yeah, I get it. But sometimes... It's depression. This holds true for any mental illness. For example, you have to accept cancer before you can fight it, right? You have to accept an addiction before you can find the humility to admit its power over you. And you have to accept mental illness or depression before you can learn to understand and alter its hold over your mind. Acceptance is not resignation. Far from it. So maintaining your self-esteem Holding on to your self-acceptance when you're struggling with a mental illness, with depression, with anxiety, with a situation that you've helped to create, for example, perhaps a chaotic relationship, or you're struggling at work. The most important two things to remember is that one fact does not define who you are, and that acceptance is not resignation. So you can hold on to your self-esteem, your competencies, even when you're struggling, And you can understand that you can accept yourself as you are and then work through issues that you've identified. Again, I'll restate, acceptance is not 
resignation. The latter is about defeat. Self-acceptance is far from defeat. It can lead, in fact, to incredible change and empowerment. Today's listener email is about a therapist and her patient. It's written, of course, by the patient. I guess the therapist could have written me, but she didn't. And here's her question. I've been seeing my therapist for quite a while, and I like her. She's caring and very professional. The problem is that she often gets facts about me incorrect. I sometimes think she may get me mixed up with another client. I usually don't say anything to correct her because... I don't want to embarrass her, but it does bother me. It makes me feel that she doesn't really know me. How do I handle this situation? Thank you for any advice you can give me. I will say that this is most therapists' nightmare, that they will confuse their patients and not keep their history straight. But to do it on a regular basis is really bad. I'll tell you a funny story in a minute about something that happened to me. But here's my answer. I'd like you to stop and think how you might handle this with another type of professional. Let's say a lawyer or a doctor. If they got the facts of your case or what they treated you for wrong, would you tell them? If you're assertive, of course you would. Yet we typically reveal more vulnerability to a therapist than to other kinds of professionals. So even the most assertive of us may shy away from correcting a therapist, and that's not good in my book. Certainly, if she frequently gets things wrong about you, I would encourage you to talk with her about it. You can tell her you don't want to embarrass her, but there's something happening between the two of you that's getting in the way of you getting better and making progress. Certainly, a patient needs to feel known and understood. If you're sitting there dealing with the emotion that might come from her error, That's obviously not the point of therapy. And there's this to think about. If no one gives her that feedback, she may not realize she has a problem with memory. And if she gets defensive, then you'll have information about her that may not be welcome, but important. You might want to consider seeking another therapist. I've certainly forgotten certain things about patients or remembered incorrectly at times. It happens. I've learned that if I'm unsure, I either need to check my notes which hopefully your therapist is taking, or I need to ask and be reminded. And I continue just a little bit. I'm glad you like her and that there are many things going well, but her making mistakes about your history may cause her to form ideas that really don't make any sense. So it's very important to address. It's worth whatever discomfort there may be, because her job is to help you, not for you to somehow feel as if you need to save her embarrassment or her feelings. Good luck to you, and thanks for reaching out. Take good care. You know, therapists are people. (laughs) They have stomach aches. They have headaches. They have children that are in trouble. They have marriages that are rocky. And so sometimes they're going to make mistakes because their concentration isn't good or they haven't listened. However, they've also been trained in how to listen well, and they have the experience of seeing a lot of people with a lot of different kinds of problems, or they may perhaps specialize in a certain kind of problem or technique. But confronting their humanity, that's important. And I certainly hope everyone hears that from me. So now I'll tell you the story. I had a patient 
whose name was Tom, and he, he had called me, and I had written his name down, and he came in, and I saw him three or four times, and therapy was going well. And he stopped me in about the fourth session and said, Margaret, I need to tell you something. And I said, what, Tom? And he goes, my name is Tim. <laughs> oh, God. I was so embarrassed. And I realized that I had, from the very get-go, misunderstood his name. And when I checked his file, he had kind of a scrawly handwriting. And I guess I saw what I wanted to see. <laughs> I thought it was Tom. So I apologized. I also told him that, just like the listener emailed, that perhaps we needed to work on his assertiveness a little bit. But I I was embarrassed. So that can happen. So now after hearing that I've been divorced twice and that I called Tom Tim, no, I called Tim Tom, (laughs) there are lots of ways to reach out to me. My website is drmargaretrutherford.com and I blog there weekly. You can email me, and I hope you do, at askdrmargaret at drmargaretrutherford.com. I love getting all the emails, and I do have time. I get up early in the morning, which I love to do, and I respond to emails. So thanks to those of you who've written in, and I want to invite those of you who might be considering it to do so. I might use your question on the podcast, and if you don't want me to, simply ask me not to do that. I'd love to ask you to give me a rating or review wherever you listen. I'm now on SoundCloud, iTunes, and Stitcher. And subscribe. That'd be great. And tell your friends about self-work. This is Dr. Margaret. Take very good care. You've been listening to Self Work.